Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there and welcome back to Up My Hockey Podcast with Jason Padolan for episode number 32. Today we have Tyson Nash aboard the pod. And uh, if you're in for some smiles and in for a few laughs, uh, you're going to get them today because this episode is uh, is full of pretty outrageous stories uh, and some real good, you know, hard talk about what it takes to make it, uh, you know, the road, to, the, the road that is the hard one is often the way and Tyson really exemplifies that in this episode. So you're in for a treat here. Uh, on another note, I just want to do a shout out to episode 31 and Mr. Nathan Lafayette. If you have not heard that podcast yet, please go back. Uh, it, it received so many great reviews, so many compliments towards Nathan uh, for being vulnerable enough for sharing his you know, his own experience applying his expert and professional perspective on how that applies, not only now, but how it applies moving forward. So younger athletes and people in general, regardless if it's in sports or in business organizations, can move forward and we can get beyond uh, race and the inequalities that exist and the injustices that exist there. And uh, I felt that Nathan handled the topic uh with with a, a certain deftness that a lot of people can't. I don't think he was a divisive on it. I think he was very reflective, and I think it's a topic. Well, I know it's a topic that just it's not going away, and I don't want it to go away until until we get to a spot white, black, brown. Uh, everyone uh, is on the same playing field. So Nathan, thank you again for doing that. And please, if you haven't heard it, go back and, and listen as it is uh, a cultural uh, subject matter. And, and I think the moment is is fresh and, and ready for that conversation. So thanks again, Nathan. Um, as far as Tyson goes, his story is amazing. Uh, I really enjoy his story. I, I knew him from back in Sherwood Park, and that's where this whole thing starts. But just what he was able to do at the junior level for starters. You know, only one team can win a championship. And at major junior level in the CHL, 60 teams currently compete every season for the Memorial Cup. That means 59 organizations aren't happy, making it one of the toughest trophies in sports to win. But Nasher raised the Memorial Cup three times in four years with the Kamloops Blazers in 1992, 94, and 95, which is a stretch of dominance never seen prior and probably never seen again. Because winning is hard, right? And making the NHL is hard. And Tyson Nash was able to accomplish both. Tyson did not have an easy path to the show. He was overlooked completely in his first year of NHL draft eligibility, and he did not get taken until the 11th round his second time through. The year the Canvas Blazers even won a Memorial Cup, and he was a pretty key player in that, he didn't go until the Canucks took him at 247. Now, Nasher already played with a chip on his shoulder, and this gave him even more fuel for the fire, and he set out to prove that these guys were wrong, that they missed the mark, that they underestimated him, and that he did belong and that he could contribute. 
And Nash made his dream come true playing six seasons in the NHL from 1999 to 2006 with the St. Louis Blues and the Phoenix Coyotes. And Nash's agitator style earned him a lot of enemies along the way. He was considered at one time to be hockey's most one of hockey's most hated players. And, you know, there, there's some scenarios there where he said that, you know, he regretted some of the stuff that he said, but he did his job to the best of ability and he wanted to stay there and, and he knew what his role was and he, and he, did, it, and he did it well. And if I had to pick one word to describe Nasher, I'd probably say competitor would be most appropriate. Uh, he fought for absolutely everything he got, sometimes literally and, and sometimes figuratively, because the road wasn't easy uh, and his job wasn't easy. But he had a dream and he had a commitment to that dream that was so firm that nothing was going to get in his way. Lots of cool stuff in this episode, lots of stuff to learn. Uh, Nasher talks about how to turn rejection into fuel. He uh, talks about what he believes are the key ingredients to building a championship team. Uh, he talks about the sage advice his dad gave him before he arrived in St. Louis that was super pivotal and how he made an impression there and ended up making that team. Uh, and he talks about how to get noticed and make people remember you. And we talk about a few elements now as a player where we feel that you can completely stand out because uh, these attributes really aren't stepped into that often. So lots of great stories here in this episode, lots of good laughs. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy it. So please enjoy the ride with Tyson Nash. All right, here we are back into the Up My Hockey podcast for episode number 32. And it's funny, we're on uh we're in this new age of doing business where we're looking at a camera and we're really like two miles apart right now. You're down the lake there, but it's uh, it's Tyson Nash uh, joining us today from Lake Country in on Okanagan Lake. Thanks for joining us, man. I uh, love to be here, man. It's uh, it's just nice to be relative that actually someone wants to actually talk to me, believe it or not. <laughs> Instead of you talking to them, right? There yeah, you go. Exactly. You get to have, uh, have someone ask you some questions. I, ro I wore my hat today, special for you. Um, oh, I like that. So I got one of my alma mater, Spokane Chiefs. Now, Nasher and I went uh, went to battle a few times um, over the course of our junior careers because uh, Camus was just up the way and always we both had pretty strong teams back in the day. And uh, unfortunately, we came out on the wrong side of some of those battles. But uh, I thought I'd represent. <laughs> I like it. I should have had mine on. What the, what the heck? Uh, they'll be disappointed. I think we actually had a scrap back in the day, too. I think we did. Yeah, I was trying to remember that, to be honest. And I'm like, I think we did. But like, oh, as if you don't remember. Come on. You you beat me. You beat did me. It? Like, fair and square. Like, come on. You always remember your wins. See, that's <laughs> funny. I mean, I, I honestly, 100%, I don't. Like, I, I, I was like, gosh. One thing I do remember playing you guys was, um, was that Tux. Tucker was always, I mean, and I knew him a little bit then, right? But the way he played and like, he never fought against us. And like, I tried, right? And I tried and he didn't want to. And he was just small to me. And, but then he came, he got big. And then he was like scrappy and, and like tough in the show. Like that yeah. whole evolution of Darcy Tucker, like blew my mind. But yeah. um, I don't even know if we should go there. But like, what, what did he fight in junior? Like he never oh, fought yeah. us. You know what? He, uh, he never grew. He never got big. I mean, his whole career, I mean, even to this day, maybe he, he ballooned a little bit. I think he yeah. swallowed an, an airbag like all of us when we retire. But uh, <laughs> no, he was tough, man. He's a he's farmer strength. He's farmer tough. He was wiry. And you could punch him square in the nose, and it just made him, made him squirrely. Um, I think he was one of those guys, though, that was so offensive and so talented 
that he didn't really have to fight all that much later on in junior. But right. when we were 16, I fought him in, in practice. He fought Daryl Sador in practice. I mean, as 16-year-olds, with that team that we had in Kamloops, we did anything it, it took to get in the lineup. And, and he, was a, he was a complete freaking animal. That's cool to know, yeah, because yeah. it just and again, right? You play you play different guys, and I mean, we played him a lot, but he was just never. I never saw that edge to him. Like I saw that he, I mean, he was always lippy, right? Yeah. He was always feisty. Yeah. He always had something to say, but he just never really seemed to want to want to do anything about it. And then for me, watching him, I thought he got bigger. Just like to me, he looked like he got stronger, right? Like it seemed to me like he got bigger his upper body and stuff. And then he kind of took on this totally different role in the NHL, and that. That was always kind of uh, a little bit shocking to me, but yeah, that's funny that we went back. Do you know what? Do you know what year that was? Do you remember the year that was that we fought? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, no idea. I, I'm so bad with the years. Yeah, um, I don't know. It was that's a long wild. time, a long time it. ago. Yeah. If, 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 if too bad we didn't like we're like 10 years younger and then we probably have it on tape but no one was recording that crap back when we were yeah. playing so. well thank goodness for me on that one <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome you you mentioned uh i mean I, I don't know where the best place to start is i mean i want to get to camloops 100 and that team but i think an interesting place for you and i is and probably more for me, to be honest, than you, because why would you really care or know too much about me? But because I was a year younger than you, and I went to, to Sherwood Park. Um, is that where you were born? Were you from Sherwood Park, or wh where were you born? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was born while well, in Edmonton, but I was raised in Sherwood Park my whole life. Uh, was it 20, 15 minutes outside of Edmonton? Yeah. Right, and your seventy-five birthday, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I came to Sherwood Park that year with the Dubinskys. Ended up making a phone call to Mike Dubinsky. They kicked our butt in the Pee Wee tournament uh, in Vernon that we that we always had. And um, I don't know. I was kind of just upset with Vernon minor hockey. I'm like, you know what? I want to go play in Alberta if I can. You know. And uh, and Mike said, yeah, come on out. Ended up staying with him for a little bit. Went to training camp, and we had one of the best teams I think Bantam hockey has ever seen. Like it was it was crazy that team. But what was interesting is that you could have been on that team but you weren't like were, were you did you um advance and play in the midgets that year or where were you yeah so we were i think we were actually the best team the year before you know so i played with mike dubinsky um because you know you never played just birth year like they do now at least in arizona which yeah. i think is is so wrong to me because it's not real life um yeah. you should always be a rookie you should always be a veteran um but yeah, the next year, instead of playing uh, again with that team as as the older guy, I moved on and I played as a underage, um, as a 15 year old with the uh, you know the Alberta Chain Gang at the right. time is what it was. So I I yeah. moved up a couple of years. So and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because you learn to play against guys that are older than you, which is what happens your entire career, right? Right. So no, yeah, because that was interesting because you definitely like there was. I mean, you had a name at that time. Obviously, you were good enough to go up and play there. Um, so I was there was like that intrigue of of who Tyson Nash was and what he was all about. And and now looking back on it, I mean, if you were on our team, like we had like thirteen guys that played. I think in the WHL from that team. I think we had five wow. guys playing the NHL from a Bantam team. Like wow, I mean, like it was we didn't lose like our first thirty three games of the year or something. Like it was just kind of one of those crazy, crazy years. Was Damon uh, Lankel on that team too? Yeah, and he was, yeah. and he was, and he was kind of okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, I say that. I mean, with all honesty, right? Like he was my, he was my left winger. I was center at the time, and Dubber was my right winger, and we were all three first years. 
right? Yeah. In the hell of a good hockey league, right? Like that was a oh, yeah. really good league. I remember when I showed up there because I came from Vernon. We had, a, we had a pretty good program in Vernon, but I remember leaving that first tryout going, oh my God, I might not make this team. You know, like that, <laughs> that, that was like what I felt. Like I was just, cause yeah. everyone seemed so good. Um, I mean, ended up, I think I ended up being second in the league in points that year or something. So it ended up working out well. And we had a great team. And Mark Curley, he still holds that over my head that uh, that he finished a couple points higher than me that year. But, <laughs> but yeah, back to Lanks. But Lanks was like, Lanks was probably the, you know, the dead weight on that line. Like, like he, we were all buddies and we'd make fun of him. He'd miss an open net on the, like, Dubber and I were setting him up. And he still had good points and stuff. But my gosh, did he end up becoming a player in junior? Like, that was an awesome evolution to see with him and obviously had a great nhl career too but um so that's interesting so we go back to short park and that's one of the best times um because success i mean not that we won everything but we won a lot we didn't win a championship but it was great friendships there i'm still friends with a lot of those guys and then we both graduated um i had one more year in penticton as, as bcj and then you went to uh Kamloops after that uh, what i was going to ask you though is like to get to get moved up in minor hockey were you always kind of the star then were you the guy were you the go-to guy the whole time points guy um you know that mvp type player um yeah you know what i mean i i don't know i, I guess yeah i was pretty decent back then I, I remember i was listed um at that vernon tournament which is which is funny um uh, as a i think a 12 or 13 year old whatever the earliest age was um and that was a big deal because i think it took up like three or four spots on on mm. the blazers uh their list sheet or whatever it was. And, um, they, they took a chance on me and yeah, I mean, I was, I was good back then. I was, I think I was kind of a, a hybrid, you know, I was like that old school kind of power forward and I could still score kind of like the Rick Tockett type of guy, like at that age and mm. in that environment. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was obviously pretty good. I, you know, I played as a 15 year old in Kamloops. I played the maximum amount of games, uh, Vern Dubinsky actually, uh, was the guy he uh, called me out of English class in, in grade 10 when I was 15 and picked me up and said, we're going to Regina. You're playing your first game in the WHL. And he drove me there in his old, I don't know what it was, big red Oldsmobile. And we right through the, the snow and, and blizzard. And we got there halfway through the first period. And that's how my, you know, my WHL career started. Come on. Halfway through the first period, you showed up and you had to get dressed by yourself in the locker room and you played. Oh, the yeah. Yeah, I had the big face shield on, and I'll never forget. Like, again, it comes back to my whole birth year hockey. I'm so against it. and That's how we do it in Arizona, where I'm from with our kids. But now I'm a 15-year-old kid. I've never, you know, at least I played with, you know, I moved up and I played with the uh, the midgets, right? So I, I'm used to playing with 18-year-old kids and 17-year-old kids. But I'm playing now with 20-year-old guys and 19-year-old guys. You walk in after in the shower and you're like oh my god i'm like a 15 year old boy you know i'm like what the? like i don't belong so it was really intimidating for sure 100 percent. and what what was the story behind that like why late to the game and and why like how did you not know you were playing why was it so such a sudden thing i think they had uh they had some injuries they played the night before and i believe it was moose jaw and you know i was as close by as they could get and you know, I, this, it was the, but it was the blizzard that got us there late. Obviously right. it was, it was nuts. It was crazy, but it was like the most exciting thing. I couldn't settle down all the way there. I think it was like a six or a seven hour car ride to Regina. Um, but it was something I will never forget walking onto that bench 
walking into the locker room, seeing my jersey hanging there. I mean, it was right. it was something. It's every kid's dream, right, to play yeah. in the Western League. So that's super cool, and especially since you got listed, and I can I share that with you as well because I was listed at thirteen, and I think unless they change, I think that was the earliest you could get it. And it was on my thirteenth. I mean, my thirteenth birthday where I got listed, and I mean from that point on, I wanted to be a chief. Period. You know. Yeah. Um, and really look forward to that opportunity. And it's funny you talk about Vern Dubinsky. Like they opened their house to me, right? Like Vern was Vern was my surrogate dad for a while because my dad had to stay back in Vernon and still, you know, pay the bills and do the business. And he'd come out for for the weekend for games and stuff. But for the first, I think, month or so, like I was I was another son in the Dubinsky household. So Vern yeah. and Vern and Don opened their doors to me, and um, you know, we're still in contact to this day. And that was a very very impressionable year. Were yeah. you? You mean how tall are you now? You're like five. You're five eleven, six footer kind of guy. Yeah, I'm borderline. Yeah, I like to say six foot, but my wife's like, no, you're five. My son, more than anyone, you're five eleven, Dad. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> with soap bars in your socks, you're six feet. But oh, and I was gonna tell you though, Puds, a funny story. So back to the Dubinskys. So I'm sitting there. I go watch my son. We're in Winnipeg. I catch a plane this past season. And my son's playing for the Lethbridge Hurricanes now in the Western Hockey League. So I catch a plane to Regina and I'm in the stands and who comes up behind me and slaps me in the ear? Well, Mike Dubinsky. He's there watching his son, Cole. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, this is so crazy. Like how the world and the hockey world turns, right? So it was was pretty crazy. That is cool. And I want to get to that then. That's wild because I I love... I love that the next generation coming through, right? I mean, it, it ages us, but it's super, for me, it's really wild because, which is one of the reasons why I'm even doing what I'm doing, because it's like, okay, we had the experience as a player, right? We went through the things you went through, the, the driving in the blizzards, the wanting to play in the WHL, the moving up, you know, dealing with, with trying to be a 16 year old, all these things we had to do as professional players. And now we see it through a different lens and our kids are going through it. Right. And there's other kids that are going through it and it's a whole different perspective. So I, I totally want to get that father perspective from you, but I want to go back just to that minor hockey and just with the size, like, did you get big early? Like, did you, did you grow a little more quick, quicker than everybody else? So you had a physical advantage at a younger age? Yeah, I, I think so. I definitely wasn't small. Um, I was bigger than average, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15. And, and I, like I said, I was a real physical player. Um, and I just, I used to just try to destroy people. Right. So you had the skill side of it and then you had the physical side of it and, you know, it, it just seemed to seem to work. Obviously things have changed, uh, greatly now. I mean, I I look at these players in the NHL and I'm like, oh my God, like some of them, I, I can't even believe they're in the league. I'm like, you guys look like little kids, little boys, like Clayton Keller. I mean, he's 165 pounds. I'm like, I, and I show my son every day. I'm like, see, you do not need to be six foot six, 210 pounds, which is what you had to be back in the day when we played. I mean, if you were over six, three, you were a first round draft pick. I mean, it was, it was that simple, but now it's completely changed. It's all about speed. It's all about skill. And if you have size and have all those things, well then look out too. Yeah. That's an even bigger advantage. And we've talked about that a little bit here, and especially now that it's playoff time where, yeah. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a different game, right? And if you want to win the big prize, you can't have a bunch of uh, water bugs running around, right? You need a few, you need a few heavy guys that that like to mix it up. And and yeah. I think because because those players are getting fewer and farther between, like their 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 value, right, on the open market is going way up because you want to have those guys uh, that can play, right? Obviously, you got to be able to play still, but yeah. uh, if you can play and and inflict a little damage and having a little intimidation factor to you, that's a pretty special combo in this day and age. 
Oh yeah. Like that Wilson, I can promise you still to this day, that Wilson in Washington, every GM in the league is saying, go find me a Wilson, go find me a Ryan Reeves. Because yeah. as you mentioned, I mean, those guys are just so valuable at playoff time for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I was just wondering that because I mean, a lot of the people that listen to the show, some are parents, you know, some are, some are young players coming up and, and just that evolution. I talk about the journey of, of getting to where you want to go. And I was a bigger guy too. Like I, I grew quicker than a lot of people. Right. So I was, I was, you know, six, seven inches taller than most guys in, in, uh, in Peewee and especially in Bantam. So, you know, it was, it was easier for me to be better. Right? right. Because if you have a little bit of skill and stuff and now you're bigger and you have that physical advantage. Okay. You know I mean? Imagine, right. Being, yeah. being that way in the NHL. So I think both of us kind of experienced that. And then, and then other guys kind of caught up, right. I mean, guys started getting bigger, guys start catching up and, uh, and it evens the playing field a little bit, but you, you then as a 13 year old listed guy, like that's essentially a blue chip prospect and a real high priority item piece for, for the Camus Blazers. Uh, and you came in with the likes of Darcy Tucker that I don't think was listed at 13. Like, and is this, I, I, I like talking about that whole dynamic, right? Because you probably, there's a little pecking order that we all go through, right? Like, where do I fit? Who am I against? What role am I going to fill? Um, Tux ends up leading the WHL in scoring, you know, and I think that your best year was 20 and not to throw that at you or anything, but like, I think you kind of started to see where your role was. And even with that team, you got you started talking about that team and trying to fit in and trying to get in the lineup. Um, was that part of your own personal evolution to try and figure out, hey, how am I going to get this done? Yeah, and I have I have good and bad, and and I don't want to bore you to death with it, but uh, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, just because I was a, I still was a very skilled player, um, and I think when you're a 16 year old and you're trying to make the team that we were trying to make, which when I was 16, we won the Memorial Cup. We had the likes of Daryl Sador, Scott Niedemeyer, uh, Zach Boyer. I mean, we were built to win. So I think at the time, they were only going to take, their plan was to take one 16-year-old, maybe two. And I wasn't really on their radar screen at that time. There was a kid there. Uh, his name was Grant Stefanowski. And he was a big kid. He was like 6'2", uh, 180 pounds, which was massive at, at 16, right? Yeah. So I'll never forget... Uh, we played our, uh, it was the rookie game that, you know, was leading into the the main camp, right? So this kid was the talk of camp. He had a great rookie camp and I'm like sitting there going, oh my God, like I'm like down on the pecking order right now. Like I'm not even like being talked about here. So he slashes me in the corner. He was on the other team and I am pissed and I'm like, oh really? And it was supposed to be no hitting in the camp. So he kind of slashes me and cross checks me in the corner. And I'm like, this is the guy I'm competing against. I'm like, so he gets the puck, he comes up the blue line, comes across the blue line, and I catch him in the trolley tracks, and I hit him, and I laid him out. It's the hardest hit I've ever made in my entire life. His helmet friggin' flew up into the rafters. He landed. They ended up carrying him off, sadly, in a stretcher. And I don't think he ever played hockey again. Really? And Yeah. And I, was, and I remember Bob Brown pulling me into the office, and he was like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, and I was in tears. I was crying. I'm like, well, he slashed me in the corner. And, but to this day, that was the only reason I made the Kamloops Blazers at 16. Even though I was listed, even though I was a big prospect, that was the only reason because I had to make room for myself. I had to do what it, it took to, to get my name and get noticed, right? right. Um, and then later on, and you know, as you evolve as, as a 16-year-old, Don Hay, uh, who I'm still, you know, I'm happy 
because he molded me into the player that I was, but I was also kind of like, well, you took the skill completely right out of my game. Like every time I got the puck, I was supposed to dump it in and, and chase it and hit somebody in the corner. And I'm like, you know, like I'm more than that, you know, like, right. and, and I see all these other guys playing on the power play, like Darcy Tucker. And I'm like, well, how come he's playing on the power play? And I never get a chance. Like I, I don't think I got one second of power play time in junior. And I was still able to, you know, put up 35 goals and 75 points in my 19 year old year. But right. it, uh, it was, a, it was a, it was a grind. It was a, I always had that burning desire to be more and be better. And I think that's the chip on my shoulder though, that also made me who I was. Right. Right. That's interesting. I was going to ask you that because you did, you mean, I think that's the, the maturation of, of most players, right? You start you start in a spot, especially on a junior team, and then by the time you get whatever it is, your draft year, your third year, or even your fourth year, like now you've grown into a you know leadership role, you're getting different yeah. minutes. Um, but even in that scenario, when you had that great year at the end, you still weren't considered to be a power play guy. No, never, never. Wow. He he ne he never put me on the power play, and it I, I went I had so many meetings with Don Hay, and he'd tell you this today. I would go into his office so screaming mad. And like, I remember I was a healthy scratch one night at 18. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, like I just, I couldn't get my wrap my head around it, but he also knew how to motivate me. Um, yeah. you know, sadly, cause, but it worked for me, you know, it, it, it did work for me. Um, I don't think that's how you motivate kids now necessarily, but, um, yeah. it, it, it worked. Um, and again, it's kind of how I found my niche in the, in the NHL too. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's what I want to talk about because I thought the, you know, looking at those teams, like you said, like you're, you're, you win three, you win three uh, Memorial cups in, in four years. Right. You I mean like yeah. that's, that's nuts. Uh, and then the people that came through there, some are household names, right. That everyone's going to remember, you know, I mean, yeah. especially like a Jerome McGinla or a Scott Niedemeyer or a Shane Doan, right. There's three hall of famers. Like that's ridiculous <laughs> in four years. Um, but there's also some other uh, names there, but me looking back on it, and it's interesting for me because I'm a guy now on the other side of the fence playing against you guys. Like I thought that your collective unit was better than the individual pieces. And what I mean by that is like the guys that went on to play in the NHL and had great careers and better careers than I did. Like at the time I was like, they're okay. You know, like, and I don't want to name names, but I mean, there's like nine guys, I think on that one team that ended up playing, you know, in games in the NHL. And I thought that if you took them out and put them on individual teams, like they wouldn't be the best defenseman, let's say on that team, or they wouldn't right. be, you know, like, and, and I, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong with that, but did you, do you have a feeling that like, whatever was going on there. Cause you said like you were playing a role that maybe you didn't want to play, but you embraced it and you did it right. Like did, did everyone like kind of finding their own piece there and being in that competitive environment, was that something that made all of you guys better? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I mean when I'm, you know, you fight it because you, you want to be the guy, but you also look around and go, okay, well, I'm not the guy right now. Darcy Tucker's the guy, Shane Doan's the guy. So I need to find my niche and my role on this team. And I think ultimately when you're on a winning team like that and in a winning environment, when scouts come to watch, they come to watch for a reason because you're, you're a winner and your team wins. And they're like, what do these kids have and how have they bought in? And that's the type of player that I want over the individual guy in, in Brandon, who's putting up 40 goals or 50 goals a year because he doesn't know how to be on a team. He doesn't know how to win. And 
I mean, you need to know how to win. No matter what level it is, you need to know how it feels. You, you need to know what it takes to win. And when you get all that, that's when scouts take notice and they go, I want that player because I think that still transfers over from junior to the American League to the NHL and in life. You just, you realize, and that's what the Kamloops Blazers, they taught me, was how to be a winner, how to play uh, and accept a role and in in be a part of a winning environment. Yeah, I mean, that's really succinct, I think, the way you put it. And I'm glad you, you said it that way, because one of the toughest things, and I'm sure you're going to have that with your son, too, right now, he's going through it. And even we'll talk about your time in the minors, but I thought even especially in the minors, right? Like, well, junior, too, you want to get drafted. Everyone wants to have, like, the, the, the light shining on them. They want to be that guy. Obviously, the higher you get drafted, the more money you're going to make as a signing bonus. There's all these, like, personal motivations that are happening there. And then in the minors, you want to be in the NHL. So how can you support somebody playing ahead of you right when you think that they're higher in the pecking order yeah but winning gives opportunities yeah right being a part of something anyone who wins a calder cup is like almost half of those guys the next year go somewhere and play in the nhl right same yeah. thing with the, your junior team is what i was saying it's like guys are there maybe they're there watching jerome again maybe they're there to watch darcy tucker but guess what they end up watching everybody yep they watch you know, the tyson nashes the brad lukowiches the Nolan mm -hmm. Baumgartner's the Strudwicks, you, you get noticed. And again, people want that in their organization. They want winners. And, you know, the, the Blazers, they were tough. They grinded us. And they, I mean, but I, you can't help but appreciate, you know, what they gave to you as a player and as, as a person, more importantly. I mean, we had to respect the, the B on the jersey, where, whether we were out in public or, or what. They, there's so much more to being a great athlete than just hockey itself. Did you, I, I, and I was going to ask you that, um, just a, about that whole culture, winning three Memorial Cups in four years, I don't think it's, I don't even think it's ever been done. And then now you're going to go pro. Now you play for St. Louis. Now you play, you know, drafted by Vancouver. You, you're in these different organizations. Like, you probably, I would assume, didn't realize how special that environment was in Kamloops because it was probably hard to ever find again. Maybe you never did see it again, right? Where it was just like that tight, whatever was going on there, that recipe that everyone's trying to find, it's just, it doesn't exist wherever you no. go. And I felt it a couple of times in my, in my career, but it, is, is that accurate, me, me saying that, that it, was, that it was hard to see again? Yeah, and you realize how special it, it is more than anything. You're like, oh man, like I don't think I appreciate it because you're in it, right? You're, you're winning. You're, you just think it, it's supposed to happen, right? You're playing with all these great players. And every time you, you throw on the, the helmet and the jersey, you have a feeling like you, you're going to win or you, you're supposed to win. And then all of a sudden you go play and you're in Syracuse and in the American Hockey League. And you're like, oh, my God, like we're just getting pumped over here. And we don't have the guys to do anything about it. You know, like this is awful. So you, you learn the other side of it too, right? And and then when I went to St. Louis, I found it again. And I'm like, oh my God, like with all these players we have, Pierre Turgeon, like Keith Kachuk, Doug Waite. I'm like, I feel like we can win every every night. And you get it all back again, you know? Right. So it's it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. You feel that, um, I know that Bob Brown uh, there in Kamloops or Rob Brown built the, no, it's Bob, right? Bob, Bob yeah. Yeah, Bob Brown was a real big factor, like had one of the best scouting engines going, right? And and really developed their players there too, which was huge. But, you know, but Don Hay was there. You mentioned Don. Um, 
you mentioned the lead, like the, the leaders that, that were there, like the Scott Niedemars, like where, where in your mind does it start? Does it start right at the top with a guy like Bob or does it start with a, with the coach that's leading or does it, or is, or does a majority of the ownership let rest on who has the letters on their chest in the locker room? I, I think it's all, uh, all encompassing. I, I, I think for sure it starts with Bob Brown. I, I really do. Um, especially for young kids. Uh, he was an intimidating man. Uh, but he was also a fair man, um, and he knew what it, it took to win. And he was going to bring in and keep and mold the players that were going to going to give him what he wanted and this, what the city wanted. And then he then he brings in a coach, which is you know an, another big piece to the puzzle because he's your leader. He's the guy giving the speeches. He's the guy that really molds these young kids because we're all so um, you know, we're like sponges, right? We're, we're looking and trying to learn and, and feel it all out. And the coach becomes so important. Um, and then your leaders, of course, they, they gotta be the right guys. They have to be selfless. Um, I know it's hard because it is, and you can't see the future. Um, but we had guys like Shane Doan and, and like, uh, even, even talks, um, but Scott Niedemar, Daryl Sador, these guys knew, somehow down deep they were going to move on and they were going to play in the nhl so the team they were never above the team and they always did what was best for the team um and i think that's just so so valuable and i think it just when you can learn from guys like that and watch how they work and for young kids watching that's what you need to do you need to watch your leaders and your best players and watch what they do watch how they prepare watch what they eat watch what they drink watch the the amount of rest they get i mean there's no secret to it. Not anymore. I mean, when we played the pl the best players, you know, sometimes they just came in and, and they just got it done. But now you have to do all the little things. It's the little things that, that give you the, the big reward at the end. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that's such an interesting thing. And now, even with what you're doing now, you, you maybe have, you're involved in it when you're talking to these guys, but you also see the teams come through. And that's something that I've been watching too, because this with my platform here in this podcast, uh, I love I love that character element, that person element. I know you've probably heard me talk about it before, but you're you're right. Back in our day, like if you if you had the right kind of toolbox, right, yeah. th that was enough a lot of times, right? And that would get you get you where you needed to go. Now there's like that there's that other element that I think is relevant. And when you talk about team leadership and captains, uh, the teams that are just quick to put the captain on their on their best player, and he might be a 21 year old. I find that that's sometimes the wrong choice, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's tough to win with that. Uh, so anyways, do, do you see that? Like, do you still feel like there's a little bit of an old traditionalist view of, of the captaincy? Like, like I'm seeing it, like put it on the guy that actually is the best example, maybe not the best player. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I couldn't agree more. I think coaches make a, a big mistake a lot of times with who they, who they give it to. Um, and a lot of times your best player isn't your captain. You know, he, he's, it's, it's the, it's the third line centerman or it's that, you know, big rugged defenseman who, who is the glue to the team, who is really the guy that everyone's listening to and respecting in the locker room. I mean, just because you put up the most points every night doesn't mean you earn the respect of, of your team. Um, so I, I do feel that way. I know uh, even at the NHL level, it's, uh, it, it is an issue. It's such an important thing, though. And I think you guys had that in Kamloops too, because I mean, I don't know Darcy Hucker's habits, but you know, he, the, the way he played, he seemed like he showed up every night, right? He was, he was a guy that gave a hundred percent and it was a, if your best player and now go to the NHL level is like, why does, why did Pittsburgh have success for so long? I mean, I, I've, I've heard, 
endless stories about how hard Crosby works, how prepared he is, right? When your best player then is also your most prepared player and your hardest worker, now you have you have this example that how the hell can a third line guy leave the rink before he does, you know, or not show up when he does. Right. And I think that's the thing that really starts help building culture too, because those guys have to lead by example and they have to be somebody you want to, you want to follow. And uh, was that example, like, I think that it seems to me that was there through those years in Kamloops. Right. I mean, you had the Zach boys, you had the Scott Niedemeyer, you had these guys just kept filling in. Right. And then there's, uh, Jerome McGinley by the time you, you were leaving, right? It's just like, wow. It seemed like leader after leader after leader was, was there from the get-go. Yeah, and you know what the interesting one, like to your point again, that team that we had is when I was 16 with all those players, Scott Niedemeyer, Darryl Sador, well, they weren't the captain. It was Craig Bonner who was our captain. And Craig right. Bonner is now a scout, uh, I think the head pro scout for the Dallas Stars. But this guy, he, I mean, he was like a big battleship. He wasn't all that talented but he'd fight anyone he was the ultimate team guy and he was the glue that kept that team and all those personalities in check and he wasn't afraid a captain is a guy who has to say and do the hard things right he has to say hey hey nasher like that wasn't good enough today and, and you do it in the right way right yeah. and i think that was my first experience of of a real captain and and what it meant and how important it was and then i moved on to pro and i didn't have another really good captain until uh the st louis blues and i had the best captain i think of all time and one of the best defensemen of all time and his name was chris pronger and uh al mckinnis was a little bit older at the time but he was for sure the you know the whatever the best player we just won the norris trophy but chris pronger was our captain and everyone knew it um and he showed me and taught me what a captain was all about because he would go in that locker room. He didn't care who you were, Pierre Turgeon, Pavel Demetra. He would rip you a new one and he would motivate you and he would tell you how it is um, because every night he was doing it and he expected it from everyone and he knew it was going to take to to win. And I'll tell you what, that guy is an absolute stud and I learned so much from him. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, let's get in. Well, Maybe we'll get back to him because I want I want to talk about your time in the minors too. And I did want to talk about Pronger because for some of the younger listeners here, I, it's sort of, I mean, it's definitely not forgotten from our era because he was what you said he was. I mean, he got the he got the Oilers almost single-handedly into the into the finals that one year. Um, and just a just a force. And I, I do want to talk about your experience with him. But out, out of the Camloose teams, we'll just, we'll tie a bow on this Camloose. Which one, which team do you think was the best? You mentioned that first year, and I looked at the guys that were on it and not as many household names, like as far as, you know, there's a couple big names that went on to play NHL, but I think there's like two or three guys that kind of went on to play in the, in the NHL and some guys sort of East Coast League guys, it seemed like, which was interesting. So that might have been an interesting environment to be in too. But then you had like the 93 or the 94 team that had like eight guys or nine guys go to the NHL. Like which, which team do you think was the most special one? Oh, man, uh, it's tough because I, w- I would – you know, they were all so good, all so different, right? Different eras. I mean, the 16-year-old year I won, um, that team was so good. But um, I think it was the last year, uh, our last year there. We won it in Kamloops. I, I think we were a, a, like a freight train, like as far as a team and the individuals we had. Like we had Shane Doan, who missed the year before because he, he had knee surgery. So he was hungry. He was the MVP uh, of our team that year. Um, it wasn't Darcy Tucker. It, it was Shane Doan, who was my right winger. Um, and uh, Jerome Aginla, he was coming into another level, um, just evolving every single year. 
um, and obviously turning into the player that he turned into. Uh, Nat Domicelli, Darcy Tucker, um, Jason Strudwick, Nolan Baumgartner. I mean, just so many yeah. guys. And then we had the, the the foot soldiers, which are also so important. Like, whether you're the Detroit Red Wings with McCarty, Draper, Maltby, I mean, Holmstrom, those guys are the guys that make you win. And it's not always the Steve Eisermans or the Fedorovs or or at that time, the Darcy Tuckers or the Shane Doans. It was like the Mike Josephsons and the Bob Westerbys of our team that that really scored big goals for us in those tournaments and in the playoffs. And it, honestly, that's what makes hockey pod so amazing is that it does take every single guy. Yeah. I hundred percent agree. It's uh what do they say? It's like a weak link sport or a top link sport. Like, you know, like b- basketball is more like you need to have like the one or two best players. And if you have the one or two best players, you're probably going to win in hockey. You can have the best player. And you're not going to win because there's just too much involved. There's too many dynamics there. You need everybody to, uh, to be able to pull that rope. So no, that's great. And what a great lesson from such an early, early age. You know, I think that's, that was special and especially to me be a part of it. Even like I said, I was on the other side of the fence for, for most of it, but I mean, to be a, to see, to see a championship group like that kind of go through and see the evolution. Like you said, that you mentioned Jerome McGinley, like unbelievable what he turned into because it wasn't, I mean, you watched him as a 16 year old. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see him leading the NHL in goals one season, you know, but like by his last year, junior, that was a little more apparent. Right. And I think that little Camus blazer factory there was interesting because everyone seemed to, you know, get better, get better, get better and stepped into their own. And, uh, yes, super cool to see. How about the draft for you, man? Like, I, I noticed that we were in actually the same draft. So I guess you never got drafted like your first year of eligibility. Um, but then you got you got in and went to uh, what you go two forty seven in the tenth round there to Vancouver. Was that expected? <laughs> like, did you think you were gonna get drafted that year or, or what? Oh man, honestly, I the draft was probably the best and worst experience of my life. Um, just because, again, like. I wasn't a big guy, right? But I'm watching the 16-year-olds and the 17-year-olds at my birth year. Ryan Huska, he goes in the third round. Uh, Darcy Tucker, he goes. Jason Strudwick, like Jason Holland, Brad, all these guys are getting drafted. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, this is an absolute joke. And I remember I was so upset that I never got drafted in my draft year. Um, but I used it as fuel. Like I just, everything in my life, everyone always told me, teachers at school, like I had a, you know, I came from a little bit of a broken home and, you know, I used that as my motivation. Hockey was my, my release. Right. And that's where I could take out my, my off ice issues and anger. And people always told me I'm too small. I'll never make it. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a shit disturber. I I cause too many problems, you know, but I just used it always for, for good. And, um, then the next year, uh, I had a great year again. Like, it's not like I wasn't putting up points or I didn't have great years. I, I did. I had more points than a lot of guys that were getting drafted. Uh, it was, I think, just a lot to do with my size. And the next year, um, I'll never forget that the, I think I was like sixth round with the central scouting, which uh, probably didn't mean a whole lot. But I was like, okay, I'm going to get drafted. This is so exciting. And I sat there and I waited and I waited and I waited and I started crying. I was by myself and in my my father-in-law at the uh, you know at the time his his kitchen and I'm like I'm I'm in tears and they finally call me and the Vancouver Canucks and I was so upset I I could barely talk to them I'm like great thanks I'm like you, you know basically you guys lucked out I'll see you at freaking training camp 
you know, like I was so pissed and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I didn't, I felt sorry for myself for a day. And then after that, I was right in the gym. I was, I was getting ready and, and I was going to show everybody you, you made a big mistake. That's wild. I, I, one of the things I'm, I'm having a hockey camp right now and I'm talking to the kids, we're having some, what I call mindset sessions and I'm talking to them about beliefs and how we, how we get to choose them, you know, like that an experience happens and we get to choose the meaning of it, but we have to be, first of all, aware that we get to choose. Cause you, usually we don't, right. It's just, we react, something happens and we react. And when I hear you talk, tell about that story, right? Like that, you could have had a different meaning to that. You mean the yeah. meaning you gave it was screw these guys. They're wrong. And I'm going to show them how wrong they are. Um, it sounds like it was a conscious choice for you, right? You, you, you felt a little sorry for yourself and then you just made it, you gave it, gave it a different meaning, one that was going to serve you. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's a really good way to, uh, to put it. Um, geez, you sound like the TV guy, not me, but, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it was, I mean, I, I was so, I was in tears. I cried buckets of tears um, because I was embarrassed. I didn't get drafted the year before. Um, I, we got a lot of pride, right? And I saw guys getting drafted one after another ahead of me, guys I didn't even know who they were, guys that didn't have Memorial Cups, you know? And I'm sitting there, this is an absolute joke. Um, but then on the flip side of that, and I've seen it a thousand, thousand times, guys get drafted in the first, second, third, fourth round, and they're like, oh, this is, this is awesome. I deserve this. And they, they have an arrogance about them. And, and I find not all of them, but some of them, they don't dig in like they need to. Because just, when you, just because you get drafted doesn't mean anything. That's yeah. great. That's great. And that's what I learned. But that's where, that's where the work starts. That's where the real hard work starts. Because, you know, until you make it, I mean, you're, you're a nobody at that point. No, 100%. Yeah, and I can speak to that too. You I mean, like... I won't get into my draft day story, but yeah, it, it's a, it's an expectation thing, right? Like I, I was expected to go early. I ended up going 31, 31 sounds glorious, but not when you think you're going to go 10th, right. You know, like that's a yeah. long hour and a half you're waiting there. Right. And same thing yeah. that night I was in my bedroom, like, oh my gosh, like it was, it wasn't a great story, but then, you know, it, it is what it is and you got to make it what, what you make of it. What, what, what I, what I looked at you. So 10th round 247 played 374 games. So, I mean, we're going to get into that. Like that's a hard spot to get games from, I mean, like there's nine guys ahead of you with that team, just in that draft alone, right. Yeah. Really on the depth chart. Right. So yeah. you're dealing, you're dealing with a lot to overcome there to get NHL games, but it was an interesting year because there was, do you know any of the guys that I thought you would have played the most games from that draft, like from that position. Right. But there was guys drafted after you that actually played more games. Do you know, could you name, there's five of them. Could you name any of them? Oh man. No, not a, not a clue. Really? That's interesting. Actually four. So yeah, so you played, I was like, for sure, right? You played 374 games, but Richard Zednick went 249. Wow. He, he played 745. Sergei Berezin went 256. He played oh. 502. And then Thomas Holmstrom went after you at 257. Played a thousand really? games. And then Kim Janssen, the last person played, uh, taken in the entire draft, uh, the defenseman from, uh, from Sweden, he played 739 games. So how crazy is that, right? Wow. wow. I love that. I absolutely love that. I hope all the kids out there that are, are listening to this, like it doesn't matter like where you get uh, shelved and where you get lumped into or where you get picked or whatever it is you want to say, it means nothing, nothing. And that's the beauty of it. Like, as you mentioned, you, you make a choice, right. And how you want to take it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and again, the, the old saying, you're only as good as your last game. It's the truest statement 
in the world. Like yeah. you're, and it goes with anything, whether you're in business, it's your last sale, it's your last year. Uh, you know, it's hockey. It's your last shift. It's your last game. It means nothing. You got to keep doing it. It's about consistency. And I just, that's amazing. That's, I can't even believe that. I, I, I had no idea. Super wild. Um, competitive, you, you played competitive. It sounds like you grew up competitive, you know, like you're kind of fighting and scrapping and clawing. Then you get to an organization like the Blazers where it had to be competitive there. We never really touched on that, but I assume like practices were competitive. Getting in the lineup was competitive. You're always pushing, right? Everyone's trying to get better. I definitely experienced that too in Spokane. Like uh, Brian Maxwell created an environment like that. Mike Babcock created an environment like that where you're pushing, right? You're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. Um, that that too, though, doesn't exist everywhere. You know, even no. at the pro level, it's, it's it's not that that same environment. So so you you step now out of out of this really successful junior environment. You get drafted by the Canucks. You got a chip on your shoulder. You're trying to prove people wrong, and now you step into you step into Syracuse and the and the uh, and the AHL. What was that experience like for you? Sort of your first, uh, you know, your first month there in in Syracuse and and being a pro and being on your own. Well, so before that, so we win the uh, Memorial Cup in Kamloops, and not a lot of people know this. Um, and this is where my career really kind of turned. Um, and everyone was, you know, cause we had the first round picks, we had Tuckers, we had all these guys and all of a sudden we win the Memorial cup. I had an amazing tournament and Vancouver's in the playoffs. Well, I'm told to pack my bag and come to Vancouver. So I get called up and I'm, I'm a black ace now with the Vancouver Canucks in the playoffs. And I was around them. I was, I, I, we didn't skate, but we were around them. Right. So I was with all these guys, Mark Watton, uh, Scott Walker, uh, all these guys watching the Vancouver Canucks, and they went all the way to the finals. To, what was it, Game Seven against the New York Rangers? Nathan and I, Yes, and I was right there with those guys. So that's my first like pro experience. I just signed a contract. Uh, I got a signing bonus, tiny. Um, again, more another story for another time, but motivation for me. And now I'm sitting there and I'm like, I got the last laugh. Like I am like kind of in the NHL, like I'm getting a taste of this. And that experience was so important. And I'll never forget. I, I showed up with my bags and I get called into Pat Quinn's office, Pat Quinn. Like you want to talk about an intimidating guy. He's <laughs> his office is you walk in and you're on one floor and his desk, all mahogany, this wood, his back's to me, he's in this big leather chair and I can see smoke coming up. And he rolls around and turns around in his chair and he's puffing on his cigar. He's like, what's up kid? Welcome to the NHL and the Vancouver Canucks. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is Pat Quinn. Are you kidding me? Like this is the coolest thing ever. And he turns out to be the, it was my only conversation ever really with him uh, after that, but he was the biggest teddy bear and just the nicest man ever. So that was my first experience. And then obviously I, uh, I went to Syracuse and, and then, you know, to your question, it, it was a frustrating thing, as you know, because it didn't matter what I did in junior. Now you're starting all over all again. You're a rookie as a 20 year old. I'm a rookie now and I'm carrying bags and skate sharpeners and the freezing cold. I'm riding the bus, eating soggy subs. I'm like, this is just a, another glorified extension of junior hockey like almost worse because at the time i was living in the syracuse new york and i, I was with the vancouver canucks so i was making like thirty thousand canadian 
living in a US economy. And in the summers, I had to deliver pizzas at Pizza Hut and to make money from year to year just to get me to my next paycheck, which didn't start till the next season, right? So right. that was my pro experience and it was it was awful. So much to juggle there, right? And that's the thing that, you know, sometimes doesn't get talked about enough. You know, you, you do have the experience of becoming a bit of an adult uh, prematurely, you know, compared to the general population, right? That's living at home with mom and dad and going to high school and not doing these things. So you go to junior hockey, you're living with a billet, you're, you're responsible for yourself accountability is way higher i would say at that age but you're still not by yourself you're still not looking for your own apartment you're still not in a new con country necessarily you're yeah. not paying your own bills and now you're trying to navigate that space as a 20 year old trying to make a team right all the other stuff you're talking about you're still trying to be a hockey player and yet all this other stuff going on uh was there anyone there that kind of helped you through it or were you were you sort of just on your own did you feel like in that in that scenario to figure it out well, again, great leadership. Um, and, and that's the, the part of hockey that people don't understand. And that's where I know and you know now more than ever, like the hockey is the hockey, but the guys that survive are the guys that can figure out in their mind and they can turn positives or negatives into positives and they can, you know, move forward mentally and, and deal with the grind and, and fight the grind and fight the adversity. It's the guys that, there's so many more skilled players than me that probably should have made it on their hockey stuff, but they couldn't deal with the mental game. And that's why sports and life is so much more about the mental aspect of it. Um, and for me, like you, even with my kid, a 16 year old kid, like it's the mental side, dealing with the veterans, dealing with all of it, the ups and downs, um, the best players in our game, everyone goes through slumps. But the best players in the games, their slumps don't turn into this like like other guys do. They turn into slumps that last this long because yeah. they can work their way out of it. They 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 battle mentally to get themselves out of that that funk and that groove. And and that is the biggest thing for me when I went to play pro is it's the mental game and just focusing every day is a new day and, and just making the most of every day and getting better every day. And then stuff will work its way out. And that's kind of how I dealt with it. Hey there, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Nasher and I uh, discuss his career. I appreciate you guys tuning in and spending time with me again this week. As always, uh, much gratitude on my side. And again, thank you so much for the reviews and the ratings and the sharing. Uh, the social media posts really help. And this week, I just want to say thanks to a new review that came in. It says, a great pod by a pro five stars. Uh, at T.A. Mayer, M-E-Y-E-R 78, who says, I listen with my son who is 10. Great perspective on the game and development. Thank you so much, T.A. Mayer 78, uh, and the others that have, uh, that have contributed to the review system. Again, we are tracking on Chartable. I am now in the top 50 hockey podcasts in Canada, which is amazing. There's so many things that are out there that you guys can listen to and for you to choose to be with me here, with my guests, uh, I truly do appreciate it. And again, the more that you guys do review, uh, the more that you do share and talk about it, the more we grow and the more these great stories and these great perspectives and lessons uh, can get in to more people's hearts and in more people's ears. And that's what this is all about. I want kids and parents and coaches to really understand uh, 
what this great game's about and how we can make those around us better, not only better hockey players, but better people. And, uh, and I believe these stories help in doing that. So thanks again. Uh, and now we'll get back to our interview with Tyson Nash. Yeah, you're almost, uh, you're essentially a commercial there, Nasher, for, for what it is that I'm like, that I do now, what I'm so advocate and uh, big advocate for is that is the mental side, the mindset side. And, and for me, it's funny because I came actually at it a different way, potentially a different way. Maybe not. I mean, you got your 370 games. I had 41, right. And that's part of the podcast at the beginning. And I, I think there's a lot of people that would line up that saw me play junior or saw me as a whatever and thought I would have had a longer pro career, right? I never really thought that I was mentally weak either. I don't think I was, right? I mean, there was a lot of things that I would do, you know, that that other guys, like my buddies, weren't able to do or capable of doing. But it was that that one little thing you said that like the, the negatives and the positives, like to continually to try and reframe your experience of what this means to you right now. And like continually trying to get better, continually trying to find a way to get to where you want to go, right? Like I, and that's where I think that I I made some mistakes. And that's why I love talking to guys now about the mistakes that I made and understanding that that is a huge portion. Like what you said is exactly right. It's a massive portion. Of course, opportunity matters. Of course, a few of these other, like your circumstances matter, but the accountability on what you can control. And we really understand the whole bandwidth of that right? Like what is actually within our control that's mm-hmm. outside of our circumstances. And we can yeah. harness that. My gosh, you become a powerful athlete and a powerful human. Right. And mm-hmm. I think some guys get a little easier than others, but I do hundred percent believe that it's a skill. I think that you can be taught. I think it can be mentored. I think it can be, uh, you know, discussed and like anything else, the more you put in the reps, the better you get at it. Right. Yeah. So the more you yeah. think about it, the more you think about it, the more you think about it, the quicker it happens. And you mentioned, a short slump to a long slump. One of the things, Nash, you'll probably like this and maybe you'll use it. I don't know. I call it closing the gap because closing the gap is such a hockey term, right? Defensemen want to get up and eliminate the gap so that you can't generate offense. How about that with your mindset and with situations? Because if you can't reframe something quickly in the moment, whether that be in a game after a mistake or whether that be being sent down or whatever, and you have these long times of feeling sorry for yourself, you're losing an opportunity massively and some yeah. steps into that void, right? So the, the the quicker we're able to close the gap, I think the better we are. And I think the best in the world, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, like are able to do that. It happens, mm-hmm. they reset, they reframe, bam, back into the state. Here we go, right? You have to. You you absolutely have to. And if you don't, you you will not succeed. You'll you won't succeed in life. Um and a lot goes into it. Now I do broadcasting, right? So it's mm-hmm. a different it's a different animal where you know every star of the show we got our microphones and and you're all pumped up you're jacked up and the national anthem's going and and boom the cameras come on and some games i just suck i can't spit anything out my tongue feels 10 sizes too too big for my mouth nothing came out like i practiced in the rehearsal and there were times early in my broadcast career where i'm sitting there going Oh my God, I sucked. That's so embarrassing. I can't believe that. Oh my God. And my, my partner at the time, Dave Strader and, and God bless his soul. He's not with us anymore, but he is a hall of fame broadcaster. He knew it. He could see it in my body language. And he'd look at me and go, shake it off, kid, shake it off. Let's go. Let's go. Let's wind it up. Let's get this thing rolling. Forget that. And it helped me. And now if I have a bad open to the show and I still do, it lasts about five seconds where before I'd sit there for five minutes and be like, and then I, I would get worse and worse and worse because I was thinking about what happened at the start of the show. Mm-hmm. So 
You got to shake it off. The mental game, I'm telling you, I agree with you. I love what you're doing. It's, I, I bet it's, I bet it's 60% of, of what we do in hockey, in life is how you manage your, your thought process. And, and yeah. uh, it's a grind, man. Oh, I agree. And especially when you get to that level, right? I mean, if you're playing junior hockey, like everyone talks, everyone wants to fall in love with talent. And there's a few people out there that exist that just are just better. Right. I mean, and, but I'm not talking about those outliers. I'm talking about everyone else. That's like there, you know, that, yeah. that has, that has that talent level. Everyone's fighting for these few spots. And I think that's when this element that we're talking about really takes over, right? Like the perseverance, the resilience, the, the ability to adapt, um, all, all those, all those like life skills, character skills are way beyond how well you can toe drag or release a shot that are going to get you, going to get you that, uh, that opportunity to play at the highest level and to stay there too. Right. There's practice players, as you know, and then there's game players. And I watch these kids now and, and I see all the skills they do and learn to go around cones and all this stuff, but, and that's on a smaller level, but then you get to a game and then who shows up. So I coached all through minor hockey and my son, I always knew who my gamers were. I know who my practice guys were and they'd fly and rip one bar down and practice, but get to a game, it would never transfer over. And it's the same with hockey. And then you take it a step further. I knew my regular season guys and I knew guys that I played with in the regular season that put up points were awesome, but it got to playoff time and they choked and they couldn't friggin' find that next gear to take it to the next level. And we all played with guys like that. And another example, I'll take it a step further because we both love, love golf. I got a bunch of pro golfers that I play with back in Arizona. And they're like, Nasher, there's so many better golfers than me. So many better golfers than me. But can they play when the pressure's on? Can they make that putt when it counts? And that, like, that is the simplest way I can put it because we all play golf. And yeah. that's what it comes down to. It's just, it's nothing more than that. Can you manage those emotions can you rise to another level you know and it can all be learned i got a thousand percent agree with you yeah when you when you were mentioning there having having a rough start to the show you know and you're beating yourself up and the self-talks going south and you remind yourself what an idiot you were and uh, and, and all these things are happening if, if we relate that to hockey and, I, and this is a question maybe that some of the younger guys can 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 learn from you I'm sure you played with a coach that you felt or in an, in a scenario where you felt that they were trying to wait for you to make a mistake, you know, like, so when that mistake happened, that was now the excuse for you not to play, or that was the excuse for you, you know, to be sent down or whatever the case may be. And then you were probably also played in a scenario where you felt like that was part of the process of getting better, you know, that they were on your side, you know, that it, it, the mistake was okay. As long as we use it as a learning opportunity, you know, and we were getting better from it if you can relate to those two scenarios, like what do you say to the guy that maybe feels like he has a coach that's waiting for him to screw up? Like, how do you, how do you get past that, that pressure of, of having somebody uh, maybe not really supporting uh, you and the process that it takes sometimes to get better? Well, I, and I can relate this to, you know, first of all, if you make a mistake and they're going to happen, hockey is a game of mistakes. Life is a game of mistakes, but it's how you, respond after that mistake i mean that is the most important thing that's where all eyes are on you and maybe you get a, another chance in the next shift maybe you got to sit a whole period until you get your next chance but it's that guy who rises and makes amends to that mistake that you know that uh, that is going to continue to rise in life and and in hockey um but i had a, a little bit of a different scenario in in vancouver 
Uh, again, I was a 247th overall draft pick. I wasn't a first, second, third round. Those guys got every opportunity in the world. So when I got there, I'm basically, I felt like a, a nobody, a nothing, um, because I wasn't an early draft pick. So every game, I had a coach that was waiting for me to make a mistake and be like, okay, you're done. Now I can put you on the bench. Now you've made that mistake and I can justify it, right? Mm-hmm. Where I I would make sure that I I had the best first period, the best first shift of the game. I was so razor focused that I'd never made that mistake. And I set the tone and I for our team so that he didn't have that excuse. And that final year, I mean, I think I scored almost 20 goals every year in the American Hockey League in in Syracuse for the Vancouver Canucks farm team. I never got a chance. So I knew it was never going to happen, but I always made sure that I was on the top of my game so that my coach couldn't couldn't have that in his back pocket to be like, okay, they're, they're right. You know, now I'm going to sit you. Now I'm going to make you a healthy scratch. Right. Um, so it, it was a mental grind for me that way. But again, it was, it was fuel for the fire for me, uh, even yeah. at, at the pro level. Yeah, that's wild. Um, and sometimes maybe that, that adaptability you had with your game maybe served you well. I mean, I don't know what type of game you were playing there in the, in the minors, uh, but as a, as somebody that's going to, you know, you're going to bang, right. You want to hit somebody, you want to make an impression. You want to, you want to get noticed. I can imagine you out there doing that. Uh, how about the, how about the center iceman that's supposed to be a playmaker that makes that bad play, you know, or turns the puck over. And now we are supposed to have, is it a short-term memory thing where you go back out there? Because I see a lot of guys because they don't want to make the mistake. Now they stop, they stop playing, right. Yeah. They, now they can become real simple. And I can relate to that actually, because that's where I never really got past that level in the NHL where it was like, holy shit like i just don't want to screw up right and when you're not when you're playing like you don't want to screw up you're not really playing at least i wasn't you know i was just playing safe um any advice for guys like that that are maybe playing a little too safe is it it a short-term memory or or is it an internal belief system in your opinion or what is it i i think uh in anything you you can't be fearful what you fear is what you create Uh, and i'm a big believer of that um i I think what you put in your your head is going to happen so if you're worried about making a mistake because you made a mistake, you know, on, the, on your last shift, it's just bound to happen again. It's the same thing with, with injuries. If you're worried about getting hurt and you play tentatively, that's when you get hurt. It's it just, it's the nature of the beast. Right. Um, you know, and I, I guess for me on that note, the, the best advice, and we all got great advice at some point from our dads or as a coach and my dad, so after I played in, in Vancouver and Syracuse, they just let me go. My contract expired. I became a free agent. St. Louis uh, called me on July 1, which is the first day of free agent signing. And I couldn't believe my phone rang. And Larry Plo, who's a Hall of Fame general manager, he called me and said, we've been watching you for three years. We love you. Um, I don't care that you're, you're, you're going to be a walk-on at training camp for us if you sign this contract. We don't care what you are, first round, second round. If you play good enough and you play what we've seen you play in the American League, you're going to make our team. I said, where do I sign? So I go to training camp, and my dad says to me, he goes, son, you played three years in the American Hockey League. You're now 23 years old. He goes, you're you're not going to get many more opportunities. This is it. Whatever you do, don't say woulda, coulda, shoulda when this training camp is over. Don't say it after your first shift. Don't say it after day one of training camp. Whatever you have to do, make an impression. And that's that's what I did. And it brought me back to even when I was a 16-year-old in Kamloops. My first shift in St. Louis Blues training camp. I put my jersey on. 
And we go out to scrimmage. They drop the puck. And Pavel Dimitra, the leading scorer of the St. Louis Blues the year before, gets the puck, comes up the blue line, cuts across the blue line. I hit him in the trolley tracks. I knock him unconscious. I separate his shoulder. They carry him off in a stretcher. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. And I can hear Tony Twist and Kelly Chase, who are on the other team, two of the toughest guys to, to play in the NHL at the time, were screaming bloody murder at me. And I'm sitting there, what have I just done? But I'm like, well, I guess I got noticed. And I think I fought three or four times in that scrimmage. I had my nose was on the side of my face. My eye was black and blue. My ear was swollen shut. And the coaches were like, who is this guy? And that's how my career started in the NHL. And ultimately, that's how I made it. Wow, Nasher, that is so wild. Yeah, That's so wild. That takes me back to Tom Laidlaw. Tom Laidlaw said his first camp, he, uh, he, came, he came in of neutral zone and just plowed over Esposito, Phil Esposito, who was at the tail end of his career. And he was like, he goes, I just didn't know how to do it any different way. And he's like, I was probably too dumb to know the difference is I think the way he put it, but he's like, it got him noticed. It got him some respect. Did yeah. you actually have to go with, with Twister? Did they, did they, did that happen? Well, I never fought Twister because Kelly Chase jumped over the boards. Um, so it was funny, Bob Plager, who's a, who's a legend, St. Louis blues legend. He's our coach for my team. So after the hit, I go to the bench to make a change. I'm like, oh, I want to get off the ice here. He goes, uh-uh, go back out. So I go back out. Kelly Chase jumps over the bench. He basically didn't even have his gloves on when he came to the center ice dot. And he goes, you know what has to happen, right? I'm going to freaking kill you. And I'm like, yep. Dropped the gloves, took the buckets off, and we fought at center ice the very next uh, shift. And he beat me absolutely senseless. But I stood in there. I took it. I took my licks. My nose was broken. It was on the side of my face, gushing blood. I pick up my gloves because there's no referees really, right? So you pick up your gloves and your stick. You don't go to the penalty box. You go back to your bench. So I go back to the bench and Bob Plager goes, uh-uh, go back out there. And I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding me? This is my coach for my team. I go back on the ice and I'm standing at center ice and Kelly Chase is like, what the heck is this kid doing? So he comes back out to center ice. And the puck gets dumped into the corner and I run it and I'm like, screw this. I got nothing to lose. I run into the corner and it's Al McKinnis and I freaking take a run at Al McKinnis and he puts a stick up right across my lips, like right across, cuts me for freaking like, I don't know, eight stitches on my lip. And finally I was able to make a line change, but the coaches, cause they were always up in the stands, right? Joel Quinville was like, who the heck is this guy? And I kind of like him. This kid's got fire. So, Oh, hundred percent. Oh, I love that story. My God. So your first shift was like five minutes long, included a oh, fight, yeah. included oh, like yeah. knocking out their best player. But don't you see these kids now? Like, and it drives me crazy because I'm a broadcaster. Now I watch all these, I've watched 15 NHL training camps and I watch these young kids come in as rookies and I'm like, okay, like you're a fifth round, sixth round pick. I'm like, or you're a walk-on. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you're going through the motions out there. I know you're intimidated. I know you're the mental game. You're, you're scared to death. You're in your first NHL camp, but you, can, you have to throw that out the window. You have to somehow get noticed. Somehow. You, this is your opportunity, and you don't get many, as you know, to yeah. make an impression, and you have to make sure you make the most of it. Yeah. 
what awesome advice from your dad though like seriously yeah. like that is so cool because i mean i i just felt that in my bones when you were saying that and, and who knows right i mean the thing is with all this coaching stuff and the stuff i do now right like the message can be right but unless the guy's ready to hear it it doesn't matter yeah you know and i don't know back when i was 22 or 23 and if someone would have said hey man you know that same message if it would have resonated quite as well but I kind of always thought there was going to be another chance for some reason, you right. know, like I right. got that trade to Toronto and like that sort of seemed to be in the books and I mean, okay, great. And then Fletcher gets fired and now I'm scoring 40 in the minors and not getting called up and don't really know why and think I should be good enough. And they get traded to LA. And that was really like that one there. Like for me, if someone would have put me aside and said, Hey, this is your second trade, man. Yeah. Right. This is your second trade. You have an opportunity here. Like grab it, grab it hard and don't let go. And I mean, I was serious, but I mean, it wasn't like that, like your level of intensity with that and like your level of like commitment to that opportunity was not the commitment I had. Right. And, and, uh, it'd been interesting if, if there was, if there was that voice in my ear, if I would have grabbed on that hard, because you're right, man, like it does, you never know that might've been how, how many times, like in your life, in my life, after a, a, a situation, after an opportunity, you're sitting there on the bus and, and, and you're like, Oh man, like I wish I would have done that. I, I should have done that. I, I could have done that. And you're like, no, like, and you're right. Like at that stage in my career, I was so upset at what happened in Vancouver. I wasn't going to let this slide. I wasn't there to make friends. In fact, everyone in that organization, as far as players went, they hated me. They couldn't stand me. I just took out their leading score who actually is on the team. Right. Yeah. So they're like, this guy's a piece of crap. Like get this guy out of there. But I got noticed. And I think that there's just so many times in your life that you're like, you walk away from something and you're, and you're regretful. And I, I think you just, you, you owe it to yourself to not be regretful for any opportunity that that's given to you to, to make the most of it. Good for you, man. Like that's one of the biggest, I find at least, um, you know, in, in the work that I've done uh, just with psychology and, and understanding how people tick and what pe makes people work and the fear of judgment. And I find that especially yeah. in pro sports, is massive right because because what you just said there, like you were prepared to be hated essentially yeah. right you were like yeah. i'm not here to make friends i'm here to make a hockey team and that's a really hard hurdle for a lot of guys to get over because you want to be liked right yeah. you want to fit in you want to be one of the guys um but really you mean like you ended up earning their respect i'm sure you weren't hated once you made that team i'm sure like it all worked out for you but you were you had to be prepared to be really uncomfortable for two three weeks to see what was going to happen yeah and the other thing like that's such a good point I, and i see kids and i say i see to my son and and my my kids at gym class in school like it's just gym class but they don't want to they're called tryhards and they're made fun of for being a tryhard i'm like what i'm like when did this exist i go uh-uh, we got all the girls in school if we were the best athlete or the best at track and field or the best, like you, you didn't get, you know, ridiculed for, for being the best at something. I go, that's a bogus way to, to think and talk, man. I go, forget it. I go, you can't be fearful of embarrassment either. Like going out there and trying your hardest and falling or a coach, a, a, a a dad, a mom, whatever, will never ridicule for going out there and trying your hardest and failing. Right. I mean, mm. you can always sleep at the end of the day for that. Yeah. No good so. for you. And I think that message now, like what we're talking about, it, it's, I think it's needed more than ever because, and this is just my own little personal take, but because the way society is starting to like 
function, you know, school, yeah. like we don't get grades anymore. Right. And we don't do this. We don't want to make somebody stand out. And it's like that whole culture of like not being a tryhard is like, it makes me sick to my stomach. Right. But like, that is what these kids are coming up with now. Right. So it's like, all right, we don't want to, we don't want to look like we're really trying to be our best because that's going to ostracize us in some way, you know? And, and, it's and, and that's exactly right. And it's crazy to me because what's the real world like? Mm -hmm. uh, uh not like that the real world rewards you in business you get rewarded for yeah. trying hard and battling and 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 doing your best and in hockey you don't try hard you don't make the nhl <laughs> like yeah. you don't get rewarded it's just not how it works so to your point that's brilliant well and, and if we bring that full circle like talking about a way to get noticed now like you know you you did it back in the day in a day where guys like there there wasn't just Tyson Nash doing that there was other guys trying to do that like I, and I think now now there's even less guys trying to do that so like in this in this era where these guys are coming up and everyone's skilled and everyone's fast and everyone's cute right if you want to show show right that yep. you want to be there that you're different man you're going to stand out like an absolute sore, sore thumb so if you can embrace this earlier that's what i mean like 13 14 like start getting it in your dna right now you know like that's going to be a difference maker for you going forward it'll never go away it will in mm. our lifetime it will never go away in business in hockey yeah someone who comes up if i'm running a business and is all in is balls to the wall and does something outside the box, like even from what I know and read on their resume, I'm taking them all day long. They're they're risk takers, they're they're battlers. And again, we talked about Darcy Tucker, and you asked me about this guy, and this is it in a nutshell, because a lot of kids are probably going, Well, that's great. Tyson Nash was always a plug, you know, like whatever. I'm not a fighter, I don't want to be a fighter. But Darcy Tucker wasn't either. This guy scored 60 goals in the American Hockey League. He was scoring 20 goals in the NHL every year. But this guy came in and he is five foot nothing, 160 pounds nothing. This guy was scoring 60 goals in junior. He didn't have to fight, but he went in there and he fought and he did what it took to make it. And if you can bring that element as a scout, as a GM, you're going, oh my God, this guy, I know he's skilled and talented, but look at him battle. Like yeah. this is, this is eye opening to me. I give him a freaking double star. Yeah. Yeah. You, and you can, I mean, the, the fighting is what, I mean, camps aren't what they used to be a hundred percent, right. They're yeah. trying to tell you you're not supposed to, but like, yeah, th there's still a way to be gritty and get noticed a hundred percent and, and, and play with that edge and, and, and separate yourself. Um, and I think it's easier than ever to do that. That's my personal opinion, but guys, guys got to want to do it. The guys got to want to buy in. They got to go, they got to see that there's a difference there. I want comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So you had the first year. Um, I love that Larry Plo said that too. What a great way to sign a guy and actually oh. believe that, you know what I mean? Like you believed it and he was honest and authentic about it. Cause a lot of guys wouldn't, wouldn't be like that, you know? Yeah. So, so you believe him, you say, yes, you sign the dotted line. You do go play with Worcester though. Uh, but you got your first NHL games that year. Uh, it looks to me like maybe it was at the end of the year because then you also played a playoff game. Is, is, is that how that went for you? Yeah, so I played, uh, I finished the training camp, had a great training camp, uh, as I as I mentioned, and, and you know, I got noticed, and uh, they were watching me every game in, in Worcester. I had a coach uh, named Greg Gilbert, and this is what changed it for me. This is the best coach I've ever had in my entire life. This guy taught me to be, okay, Tyson, this is how you're going to make it. As Tyson Nash, this is how you're going to make it. There's lots of skill players. There's lots of guys that can put the puck in the net and do all that. St. Louis has a lot of those guys. Probably too many of those guys. 
what are you going to do that's going to differentiate you from the rest of the group? And whatever that is, you need to be the best at it. And I worked on it all year. He taught me every, every game, every practice, that puck's got to get out on the blue line. That puck's got to get, you know, that play's got to be made here. You can't, if you're going to get to the next level, you get that opportunity in the NHL. That puck can't be turned over here or there. That can happen in the American League. It can't happen in the NHL because Brett Hall is going to take that puck and stick it right in your net, you know? So I was like, okay, this all makes sense. He was the first positive coach that actually believed in me. And by him believing in me, I wanted to go to another level. I wanted to work harder in the gym, harder on the ice. I'd go through a wall for this guy just because he believed in me. And coaches, I just can't figure out bosses. I can't figure out for the life of me how and why that hasn't changed sooner. I think we're seeing that now. Yeah. But if you believe in someone, like, oh, my God, like the stuff that they are capable of is tenfold from what yeah. you've been getting out of them and that's what larry plow gave to me that's what greg gilbert gave to me and ultimately uh, again to your question um you know i yeah i signed on the dotted line i finally got my opportunity in st louis and again it was that same message from my dad it was an afternoon game i got called up to the blues i spent four years in the american hockey league now i'm like this is my only opportunity and this is it right here afternoon game against the dallas stars i played six minutes that night i think i had 10 hits uh, I ended up running over somebody. I, I fought Pat Verbeek. Um, Joel Quinbo was just like, oh my God, this guy is out of his mind. This is the coolest. I love this guy. So I traveled with him the next day. We played in Toronto. I went after Matt Sundin. I went after Ty Domi. I had Tony Twist next to me. So Tony Twist was loving it too. Cause he's like, dude, you make my job look so easy. Cause you stir it up and I go in there and clean it up. And so it was easy. I made his job easy. The guys were like, what is this? Who is this guy? Like, what is he even doing? I think I drew two penalties that night. Power play went out there. Chris Pronger, Al McKinnis, Turgeon to the back of the net. And I, I found my niche. And, uh, and then after we finished in Worcester uh, in the playoffs, I was the first guy called up. Um, and I played uh, in the first playoff game after uh, St. Louis took out Arizona in game seven. We played the Dallas Stars. I played. Uh, my first ever uh, playoff game. I was I played six minutes that night. Didn't go so well. I finished minus three. Um, yeah, so I, I cried. Get back in. I cried. Yeah, I cried. I went home, and again, it's that mental game that you have to play with yourself, right? Everything was going great. All of a sudden, I hit a brick wall, and I was minus three. Wasn't sure I was ever going to play again, and I had to think about that all summer long. Wow. That is pretty, but obviously still made an impression because it looks like then you end up making the team out of camp next year, right? Yeah. Yeah. I made it out of training camp and uh, yeah, I just, I tried to forget about that experience and I went in there and did the same thing all over again. I mean, again, it's, it was not an easy thing to do, um, but yeah, you got to do whatever it takes, right? How bad do you want it? Yeah. You talked about Brad Gilbert there and I think that's, that's awesome because w what a gift that was. And I, I want to have uh, Jared Smithson on here one, one of these times too, because he talked about his experience at, w w in the AHL after being an AHLer for a while that a guy took the time to teach him the game that he needed to learn, you know, to get to that next level, what face-offs and, you know, to learn how to play in his own end and ended up playing five, 600 games, whatever he played, you know, after, you know, a lot of people would have written him off kind of essentially. And, and so you had, you had uh, Gilbert come in there and do the same for you what like in, in that in that experience or you 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 talk about coaches are kind of going through an evolution and i couldn't agree more and i think it's like 
my gosh, I can't, I can't believe it take, took this long. But like mm-hmm. when somebody wants to spend a little time with you, you know, like someone wants to give you that little bit of a fire to say, you know what, this guy does, not only does he believe me, but at least he cares about me. Like he mm-hmm. gives a shit. Like that's a big thing for a player. And I think it, when it's your coach, I think you're pretty lucky. I think in, if anyone has anybody in their circle other than their parents, I think that can also be a, a pretty big advantage. But um, did you ever, like, did you ever say thanks to, to, to Gilly? I know that's what he was supposed to do and that's his job, but it's kind of, it, sometimes it seems like when I talk to guys, like you sort of get that special connection. It almost turns into something a little different than a player coach thing when that, when that happens. Oh yeah. I have never forgotten it. And that's, that's the beauty of our game. It's such a small circle and, you know, you're still friends with the guys in Shore Park as I am. And, um, you know, you appreciate all the people that have helped you along the way because it takes a, it takes a lot of them. And I, you know, I think for the first two or three years, I sent him a case of wine every year, um, you know, just to say thank you for believing in me. And, and I mean, it was, the, it, was it, it's the only reason I made the NHL. It, it truly really is, is because he believed in me. I never had anyone believe in me. I had everyone always fighting against me and telling me I was never going to be good enough and telling me I wasn't big enough, wasn't fast enough, wasn't skilled enough. And uh, that wears on you after a while. And at some point, whether it's your kids as a parent, like like even parents are so hard on their kids. I'm like, what are you doing? And I was that guy too. I used to be so hard on my kid coaching him until he wanted to quit. And that was a wake-up call for me. And And I'm like, oh my God, like, I love this game. I almost made my son quit because I was like a, a Mike Keenan on the bench. And right. I, I'm like, what am I doing? That's not even my personality. And it, it was breaking my kid. And, and same thing for him. He found a coach the next year and this guy loved on him. And it, he completely went from here to here because someone believed in him. And that's sometimes all it takes. And it's not just hockey. It's in your own house, making your kids that, think that they are the best and what can go wrong if a kid is full of confidence you know a little bit of arrogance there's nothing wrong with that little confidence is all you need sure 100 percent. how do you feel that's an interesting uh subject because confidence again i i see it in in homes right I, i i see it kind of in society and there's there's maybe this idea of like telling kids that they're you can do anything you want you're great you're so smart you're so this you're so that and, and there's this idea that that's going to give kid, kids confidence, yet they don't, they're not able to fight the battles that actually gives them, in my opinion, the real confidence, right? So I think that there's, there's a fine line when it comes to coaching and parenting, in my opinion, where you want to make them feel like the power of possibility is endless, right? That, that, but then they're also in control of what that is, and they can get themselves out of situations. So we don't, we don't remove all the walls and all the obstacles for them, right? So they, they, they never have to experience adversity, because yeah. I think that's where that kind of that real element of confidence comes from. How do you feel about that? I agree with you. I mean, I think if we look at both of our stories or anyone's um, stories who have made it, all the adversity. I mean, no one gets there on, on a golden road, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's not, it's not the way it works. And you're absolutely right. I think um, confidence is earned. And uh, y- you can only be confident once you've gone through stuff and overcome stuff um, to realize that, you know, because – you, you can't fake that. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't fake confidence. Um, cause you know, down deep that, you know, you, you what you're feeling inside in your heart and your mind, um, the stuff that's going through your mind. So it is, it is earned and, and kids, you know, we want to, as parents, we want to take 
and and make it so easy on our kids but you have to fight against that because and as coaches too because they need to go through it and they need to rise above it and uh, and when they do the power that you get within is just you, you can't you can't experience that because of just empty words right you Getting back to, I mean, we didn't talk about the East Coast League, and maybe we, we don't have to, but I mean, in, in your first year pro, you ended up playing in the East Coast League for a little bit. Like you said, didn't really get feel like you had much of a chance in Syracuse. Now you sign this new ticket in St. Louis, one more year with them in the minors, and then you're in the NHL consistently for, what does it look like, six six seasons. Um, like you made it. You were an NHLer. You mean, well, you weren't a fringe guy. You were in the show, and you've earned, you earned your place there. In In that time frame i looked the one year like your first year there you led the you led the st louis blues by like 60 penalty minutes in pimps um was that where you kind of got your stranglehold do you think like were you that agitator were you that guy that was going to fight and run people over like was that kind of where you where you sort of segmented yourself into that lineup and then and then in the future to allow yourself to stay in that league yeah so back to your east coast thing i mean that was the lowest of lows in my entire career. Um, and again, it got back to that point where Vancouver was just looking for any reason to bury me. Um, I got a concussion. Uh, I came back and uh, they said, we're going to send you down there for conditioning. And, and they couldn't have been happier, right? Just to get rid of a, a body. Um, so they didn't have to make someone a healthy scratch, right? Because when I was playing, I would make it impossible for them to make me a healthy scratch. I mean, it just the players on the team would, they couldn't accept it. If they were like, you can't sit him out. He's, you know, he's working his, his ass off every, every shift, every night. So again, that was the lowest of lows, another mental battle, more adversity that you need to overcome. And again, you, you want to prove people wrong. Right. So that was mm -hmm. my fuel. Um, and then, I, yeah, as I mentioned, when I got to St. Louis, I had to, to fit in, I had to find a role. We had a, a lot of guys that were skilled, a lot of guys that, um, you know, uh, we're, I brought something different to the table. Um, and Joel Quinville came to me and said, Nasher, yeah, I'll never forget. It was in the, the bowels of the rink. It was in the hallway, right in front of the St. Louis blues logo on the wall. And he said, Nasher, he goes, can you keep this up? And I said, what do you mean coach? He goes, can you keep playing this hard and being this big of a, uh, of a dick? And I said, <laughs> I go, yeah, if it keeps me out of the minors and he goes, well, if you can do that and you can be the most hated guy in this league, you got you always have a job with the St. Louis Blues. Go get a go get a place to live. And I was like, "Oh my god." I had tears rolling down my cheeks. I think at the time I just got my first cell phone that was like this big. It was like a big lunchbox. I I called my uh, uh my wife uh, and told her the news and said, "Pack up. We're we're staying in St. Louis." And and the rest was was history and I I think, you know, and then the flip on that though, like I never, I did that for as long as I could. And I'm not a big guy, but the body just wore down after a while. Um, I think I signed, uh, I think I went through two lockouts. I signed nine one-way contracts with, uh, with the blues and, and, uh, and Arizona, but the body just started to deteriorate. But the biggest thing for me and the message to the kids is I never evolved. I always just accepted my role. Um, and even though that's what made me and got me to the NHL, you need to evolve and you need to get better every single day because there was games where I was playing, you know, six, seven minutes a game. You're, you're getting six or seven shifts. So when you get practice time, you got to continue to work on your game. You have to continue to get better. And that's why I really admire guys in the NHL, like the Darcy Tuckers that 
that got better and evolved into those more skilled players. Uh, the Steve Otts, the, uh, you know, the, even as far back as the Kenny Lindsmans, the Esatikinens, um, the Sean Averys, like they evolved and turned into really good hockey players. I never did that. I just accepted my role and, uh, and that was ultimately my downfall. Yeah, downfall, I guess, of becoming maybe uh, having a little more longevity, right? Because you said yeah. you can't to, to play that role that you played. Um, tough to do that at thirty-five, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, a, a guy I had on that you, maybe you'd like to listen to, or maybe you had was was Scott Nickel, and I mean, he was from your yeah. from, from our age group there in in junior, and and I was able to play with him in Detroit, where he had already been like I think seven years in the minors. You know, I mean, five foot nothing. 150 nothing pounds and if there was ever a guy that you thought was a career minor leaguer like a good character guy like that was going to be there forever it was scott nickel and he, he kind of had a similar story when he got his second life there in in calgary he's like i'm just this is my chance this yeah. is my chance for this new team and then the little bastard doesn't he stick around for like another 10 years or whatever the yeah. hell he did right yeah. like yeah unbelievable and i think story. i think his coach if i'm not mistaken in calgary was greg gilbert yeah was hey, my guy that was yeah. my guy who and i'm sure he had the same i'd love to talk to him that's interesting i used to fight scott nickel every single game we used to we used to fight in in junior in the nhl i believe in the minors like this guy was just a he was a little uh yeah what a story he is you're right yeah well i mean you guys kind of you guys sort of remind me of each other a little bit i mean both really gritty you know both both did it on your uh, on your heart right like made a difference you were that guy willing to be that guy every night and uh and that's another thing right because those guys in the locker room are necessary not even just on the ice but even in the in the, in the locker room what what was that like for you i know we're getting close to time here god this always happens i haven't even talked about your uh about your broadcasting yet but you know being being somebody that people don't like we talked about that judgment thing i know you i i assume you got the respect of your own team in the locker room which is really all that matters but when you're going out there every night and you are that guy that the league hates uh, was that fun for you? Was, was it something that you didn't like? Like, how, how was that on just like on a human level for you? It was, it was awful. It, it actually tore me up inside because, um, I mean, there was times, especially in the playoffs where I, I mean, I was a, I was a shit disturber. That was my job. I, I mean, I was probably the most hated guy in the NHL for, for three or four years. And I got my face punched in almost every night. Like people wanted to absolute kill me my coach couldn't put me on the ice in the last you know 10 15 minutes of, of a game if we had any sort of lead or or we're losing i mean just to protect me from from guys in, in that era um yeah. but it was awful because i had to always take it to another level and in the playoffs uh i'll never forget going after guys you know like some of the stuff that guys would get me to say it just wasn't part of my nature right but I had to do it. Otherwise I wasn't effective. Um, if I wasn't stirring stuff up and creating power plays for, for one of the best power plays in the league at the time with the, with the blues. So, um, it, it was something I struggled with internally, uh, for sure. Cause there was, no one was safe with me. I went after girlfriends, wives, grandmas. Um, and again, it's not something I'm, I'm proud of, but, um, you know, I went after Theo Fleury one night and, uh, I still have, have anxiety over it. I've, I've apologized to him numerous times in person. Um, uh, and Kerry Fraser actually uh, heard me say it on the ice and, and he made me uh, apologize to him in front of both teams at center ice, um, you know, in, uh, in Madison square garden. 
um because what i said was was offside and uh and totally just just gross right so, so you that's an interesting that's an interesting part of the game uh i remember sean avery you mentioned him already and and he we were playing in the minors and at this point i'd played let's say four years i don't know exactly it doesn't really matter but i i hadn't really i hadn't made hadn't made it right to the nhl kind of had my cup of coffee was was a real good AHL player was scoring a lot of points there and all of a sudden we roll in and we're playing against Sean Avery in the minors and this guy does not leave me alone and like and it's like he's done his homework right like he's he's hitting every nerve with me that you can imagine right like that I'm a cancer and I'm this and nobody wants me and you know like whether it was true or not but it was like all those little subtle things you know like going the yeah right like yeah. right there and I'm like this guy's good like I remember leaving that game going wow like that wasn't just normal chirps. Like that was like, yeah. you know, he's done his homework. Like he knows where I've been. He knows what I've done. Did you find yourself like doing that as well? Were you were you getting in like opening up the encyclopedia on guys and trying to get into some dirt stuff? Oh yeah, it's, it's funny. Like Sean Avery, I think I was Sean Avery's first NHL fight. So he was a guy who wanted to play like like me, right? And he wanted that's how he was going to make his niche, right? Mm. And uh, it was a big thing, I think, for him when he came up and he asked me to fight center ice in St. Louis. And it was, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. So um, I, I, I leaned on a lot of guys um, and I mean, you know, it's like in the locker room or whatever, you're on the plane and you're playing, you know, Boston the next night. And, you know, I got Kelly chase feeding me going, Hey, you got to give it to this guy. This, you know, this is the story. And I'd be like, okay, thanks. You know, sure enough, I get the center ice or skating by the bench and I would, just let it fly. Right. And, uh, again, it's not something I'm proud of because even to this day, like I see a lot of guys around at NHLPA meetings or whatever, and they're kind of like, Oh, I freaking hate that guy. Like, you know, there's still kind of, you know, there was lines that I crossed and, uh, I do, I do regret it in some ways, but again, you, you have to do what you have to do. I got a family, I got kids. Um, and obviously the NHL was my lifelong dream. Right. Yeah. I hear you. And maybe we'll tie that up. I mean, we've been here for, for 90 minutes now, and I really appreciate your time. In saying that, which I think is maybe a nice little bridge to what you're doing now is this cancel culture that I'll call it. I mean, it's not that it's not that I've tagged at this. I mean, it's definitely been said this on social media, but where, you know, there seems like sensitivities are at an all-time high. It seems like, you know, there's a lot of people that are just waiting uh, to say that you made me mad. Uh, from a guy that played the way you did, maybe said the things you did. Now you're behind a microphone. Do you find yourself having to be completely vanilla? I mean, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but it sounds like everyone kind of has the same thing to say right now on TV. And I think because my gosh, if you say anything that's might be a little off, you might not have a job the next day. Like how, how do you go about that on a personal level? Yeah, I fight it because, you know, you know, you see, uh, you know, some guys firing off on podcasts and, you know, telling stories and it's like a huge popular thing. But then you see guys that get behind the mic on national television and you can't even breathe the wrong remark, right? You can't say the wrong thing because in the world today, and it's, and it is quite sad. I mean, that, you know, everything I say, I have to filter through my mind. I, I have to think about it because the world is changing and, and, a lot for the the better for sure um you know which i do not have an issue with but 
sometimes just people are just overly sensitive and critical about and take things out of context. And, and that's what I don't like is that things can be said and miscued and you can be tweeting stuff and social media is also a very dangerous, dangerous thing um, for kids and for people in the workplace. And um, so you have to be so careful before you hit that send button that you're not going to offend people because everything right now in the world gets taken the wrong way. Um, and if people don't like you, they'll find something in what you've said and, and make it that way or appear to be that way. So it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's scary times to be honest, to, uh, to have a microphone, a live microphone, uh, and, and try to be funny, try to be humorous and entertaining, um, you know, and, and still be obviously informative about the, the great game of hockey as well. So it's, uh, for sure different times, um, but we're all adjusting and it's just more adversity for all of us. Yeah. It's, uh. It's interesting because I think there is a lot of people that like, like to still hear, like, that's what I loved about grapes. You know, like for me personally, it was like, did I agree with everything he said or how he said it? Not at all, but it was interesting to listen to him, you know, and, and, uh, and maybe I wasn't the brunt of all his jokes and I wasn't, but I mean, I just think he's, he was an old guy that had an opinion, you know, and, and old guys with opinions aren't going to have, uh, make everyone happy all the time, you know? And it was, yeah. I don't know. I, I just think that that flavor of like having the individual be allowed to be an individual, I think is, is lost. And, and what I hope Nasher is like that, you know, the pendulum like swings, right? Yeah. Like, so we're, ma- we're in the, we're in the process of making a change. Like you've already echoed that, you know, I think it's for the better. I think we all agree that it's for the better, but I think it's gone a little too far yeah. the one way, you know, and I, and I hope that that's going to swing back and we can find a little bit of a medium here where, where we are more tolerant that we're definitely, uh, you know, understand people's sensitivities, but where we can still have an opinion, you know, we can still have a laugh and we can still uh, enjoy each other in that, in that space, right. Without feeling fearful of maybe losing a job or ostracizing somebody, whatever the case may be. And so I respect yeah. what you guys are doing. You know I mean? There's a, I mean, I'm not a Mike Milbury fan. Uh, I never met the man, but I mean, the stories that I've heard and from guys who played for him, but like his little, his comment there, like, I was like, man, like my personal opinion was like, wow, like, I would think that would offend, offend the players more than any women. For, for me, I had the discussion with my wife, and I know there's everyone's going to have a different opinion on that, but it's like to, to, to be taken off the air over something like that. I mean, that has right. to be uh, something in the back of your mind. Is there a preparation process you go through? We didn't actually get into preparation as a player, but maybe we'll just leave with this. Like Preparation for hockey is one, another one of my big talking points here with these guys is like come with intention, right? Come with intention to the ice or to your practice, and you come with intention – you're going to get something done. Do you have a, a preparation or an intention that you try to bring every night? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's so important. Um, obviously, being prepared, uh, putting the work in, um, educating yourself. Um, and then, you know, honestly, for me, um, and just like hockey, you can't overthink stuff, right? You, you still have to go out there. It's still a game. And you, you still just got to do what you've done your whole life and, and, and be who you are and do what you know you can do. Um, you know, cause I think a lot of times in these players, even today, I say it, I'm like these coaches, the video and the, the, the skills and the cones and the everything, it's all great for a, for a, for a certain point, but you still have to go out there and compete. Number one, work hard. Number two, and then everything else will fall into place. If you look at the best players in the world, the Sidney Crosby's, the, the dad Zooks, the, Nathan McKinnon, this guy blows my mind right now. He is not only the most skilled guy on the ice, but he's also, he works the hardest. And when you put those things together, along with 
compete because I think work and compete is very different. You put all those three things together and that's what you get. That's what you get. So when you're a, a bubble guy or you're an average player and you don't even work as hard as a guy like that, like what is that saying? So um, again, back to your point, I'm getting all over the place, but it uh, preparation is is absolutely everything, but you do have to just kind of let it freewheel. I know I'm a good person. I know I have a good personality. And when I get on TV, I want that to shine as, as well, because that's also what we're doing is entertaining and, and trying to be fun. And people want, to feel like they're in the locker room and they have that environment. Uh, but you do have to be a little extra cautious right now with, with what's, uh, what's being said. Yeah. I think that's maybe a good place to close. I mean, for, for me, the preparation uh, and what I've learned from preparation and, and, and it sounds like you're echoing that is like, that's where that, where that big piece of confidence can come from because mm. now you're not thinking, right? So now when you are doing your broadcast and you're out on there on the ice, the stuff you've done before you got in the ice, whether that's practice, whether that's your visualization technique before the game or the night before, or whatever that thing is for you as an individual, now it's time to go, right? Yeah. Now it's time to go. And because you've put the work in, because you've done the, the attention to detail, you've done your homework, you can just go out there and react and respond and play instead of being in the moment and wondering what you're supposed to do. So I think, yeah. again, the quicker the, that um, I learned that as I, I started learning that as a pro, like, I don't know about you, but like, it's interesting because that's another thing that doesn't necessarily get talked about very much, even at the junior level. Like, how are you preparing to go on the ice for practice? Mm-hmm. How are you preparing to play the game, to play your best game? Um, when guys start figuring that out and understanding that's a big part of the process, we are we do show up more confident. We have higher success and we're higher performers. So, um, Nasher, you are amazing. Awesome. Well awesome. I really appreciate you coming out today uh, spending the time with us. What an awesome story. I, I love I love the guys with uh, with the edge and with the fire and with the spit and vinegar. And um, like I said, I think, I think the people listening here embrace it, right? It's a bigger opportunity than it ever has been right now. If you want to be a hockey player to go show guys that you're a little different, um, stand out from the crowd and, uh, and you're going to go places, whether it's a scholarship yeah. or a junior team or an NHL program or whatever, there's, there's people that want guys like that. And I think you're a testament to that uh, Nasher. So thanks for being here today. And uh, we had to go for that boat ride here one of these days. I love it, man. I'm just down the road. Don't forget me. I got to get one of those phones that rings. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) All right, man. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Amazing guest. And uh, till next time, everybody, play hard and keep your head up. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode and sticking with us. Uh, I, I think that one was pretty easy to stay on board with. What a bunch of great stories. My personal favorite is that training camp story in St. Louis. Uh, being a hockey player and understanding you know, how hard it is to get into a fight, let alone with somebody you know is going to kick your butt, picking your stuff up with your nose on the side of your face, thinking you're going to go to the bench and have a glass of water and maybe a breather and the coach points you back out there. Uh, that is really wild, wild stuff. Uh, wild West type stuff. Amongst all the other things that we were talking about and sharing, you know, Asher, I uh, really appreciate your time as always with all the guests that come on. You know, it's 90 minutes and I know life, you know, has so many other reasons uh, calling for us and places to be. But for my guests to take that time and to share these stories with us is uh, I'm really grateful and I know the listeners are really grateful. So for Nasher, if you're listening, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, I do believe your perspective uh, about effort you know, and about having the courage, about not caring about what other people are going to think of you and just keeping 
your goals and dreams in mind and no woulda, coulda, shoulda. I love that example from your father too. What what amazing advice that was. And But you know, advice is one thing, like I said in the episode, the other thing is to actually go out there and live it. To somehow be able to implement that advice is, is something that gets left sometimes, but you were able to grab onto that advice with both hands and you took it seriously and you got six seasons in the, in the NHL to show for it. So for all you young listeners out there, you can make a difference. I'm telling you, when you want to dig in and you want to be gritty and you want to be competitive, you can stand out. You can stand out and you can earn that spot because others sometimes aren't willing to try as hard as maybe they can. So great lessons by Mr. Nash. Uh, awesome episode. Really thank you all for being here. Uh, really appreciate you spending your time. And I keep trying to bring you amazing guests, get some laughs on your face and give you some good lessons to move forward with your week. So until next time, play hard and keep your head up.